Hello, welcome to all of our listeners in the LexisNexis family. My name is James Paniki. I'm the Asia-Pacific Senior Editor with MLEX, a global media service covering regulatory affairs. It's great to be with you, and given that the midpoint of the year is fast approaching, we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to look back at the highlights of our coverage in the first half of 2022 and remind you and maybe even remind ourselves of the kinds of stories that we've been following. It has been a particularly uh, busy time uh, for us and there's plenty to choose from. Now, I'm based in Melbourne. Our senior reporter, Laurel Henning, uh, is usually based in Sydney but happens to be with me in Melbourne uh, at this very moment. Hello, uh, Laurel. It's great to talk to you face-to-face from the Paris end of Queen Street. Hi, James. (laughs) I don't know what the other end of Queen Street is called, (laughs) but... uh, Uh, Who knows? Um, Look, let's kick things off maybe with an international competition dispute, which we've been covering uh, from our our end uh, here in Australia, albeit with the assistance of our MLEX colleagues in Silicon Valley. Epic Games is a company best known for Fortnite, the popular video game, and Epic has been in the news of late as a result of some very high-profile lawsuits. We've been covering the action in the Federal Court of Australia. Our MLEX team in Silicon Valley has been covering the U.S side of this, but what uh, do our colleagues uh, in LexisNexis need to know about the history of this story and why it might be of interest to our subscribers? Thanks, James. So let's go all the way back to when Epic announced its Australian lawsuit against Google, uh, well, first of all, Google, in March of 2021, um, expanding the game developers' court battles against both Apple and Google in Australia with other legal proceedings, as you've mentioned, already underway in the US and also in the UK, as well as an antitrust complaint against Apple in the EU. Uh, Now against Apple in Australia, Epic had already filed that lawsuit um, earlier back in November 2020, uh, again part of a global campaign against the US iPhone maker, with Epic arguing that Apple should face the imposition of a court order to force the technology company to allow Epic back into its app store. Right now, Epic's lawsuits against both Apple and Google in Australia have been put on roughly the same timeline to be heard in 2024. So, Wow, 2024, <laughs> that's a long time away. <laughs> that is some forward planning, even for someone <laughs> like me who loves loves a good list. However, Federal Court of Australia Judge Nye Perham, who has sort of set this timeline, has also said that that decision for, tw- for a 2024 hearing in no way determines questions such as whether the cases will be heard sequentially or together in this in some fashion so that's still to be decided and i mean this is an interesting problem isn't it because uh, the world of tech moves so fast mm. that who knows what the state of play is going to be in 2024 and that's the, the the interesting thing where you get stuck in a moment of history right um and then things uh, evolve now both google and apple um th- their attempt to stop these australian lawsuits uh, from taking place is actually quite interesting because it's not just about them fighting the actual court case, it's them saying, no, this should not be heard in Australia at all. Now, tell me something about why these efforts of theirs were ultimately unsuccessful. In Australia, it's really come down to a question of public interest. Um, Google's application, which was blocked earlier this year, very much matched that of Apple's last year, which was thrown out by a full bench of the court after Epic argued it was in the public interest that it stay, uh, um, that the case stay in Australia. Yeah, the the contractual issue here was uh, itself a fascinating one for us, wasn't it? Because it, it opened up a discussion about jurisdictions and the degree to which Australian competition law trumps 
the terms and conditions that users of global tech companies might be required to sign up to. So we ended up writing what I thought, if I may speak <laughs> immodestly, was a good piece of analysis on this back in February. What we found was that time and time again, Australian federal court judges are very, very reluctant to accept that contractual arrangements that uh, big tech may have in place uh, should take precedence. And we've seen this play out in other tech cases uh, in Australia involving both Google and Facebook. So, I mean, uh, the way to illustrate this is, I suppose, a third company, so a company that uses Facebook or Google platforms, has a dispute that it can't resolve with the platforms, and the platforms say, well, in order to use our services, you have, in fact, signed up, you know, the, the terms and conditions, or you might have ticked a, a box somewhere saying that any dispute needs to be resolved in an arbitration court in the US, namely uh, California. Uh, the local companies, though, say, no, 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 hang on, if you're violating Australian competition law, we want this resolved here. So the question is, what takes precedence? Is it Australian competition law or these contractual arrangements? Now, the uh, platforms obviously hate all of this. Um, they appear to be attempting to argue against this at every opportunity. They've had some success, but not where it matters. And then uh, there are plenty of international examples, such as Epic Games, um, that are going to be heard in Australia. And that means that it could well be that in a not too distant future, many international cases are heard in Australia. And that's obviously good for our good for us as journalists, good for MLEX's business model, because there's uh, there are so many things for us to cover. Now let's stay in the competition law space for a moment and discuss the only criminal cartel lawsuit that is before an Australian court at the moment with links to a family-run foreign exchange business. James, why is this case so important? Okay, so just a bit of background on this. In 2009, Australia adopted criminal cartel legislation. Uh, and by cartels, we're obviously not talking, we're talking about, <laughs> you know, whenever you go to a party, people say, oh, cartels, so drug cartels. No, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about um, price-fixing, anti-competitive agreements, reached by competitors in a, in a given market. Now, the criminal legislation means that as of 2009, serious cartel cases can be punishable by up to 10 years in jail. Now, there have been a number of significant criminal cartel prosecutions that we've followed. I think the case, this case involving a foreign exchange company called Vena Money Transfer is in fact the third, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the third such case. Uh, it has been a success until now uh, for the ACCC, which is the agency that investigates these cases, although it's not the, the prosecutor that goes through the um, Commonwealth uh, Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, but we need to be a bit cautious uh, in talking about this because one of the five individuals charged is pleading not guilty, and so that will go to a trial before a jury later in the year. The other four, is that the right number? I've got the right number, yes. I think it's actually five. So if you include in the criminal cartel space, so we're gonna include Vina, obviously, that we're now talking about. We yes. talk about uh, the banking cartel, which collapsed. We talk about country care that did go to a jury, but yes. uh, everyone was acquitted. We talk about the CFMMEU construction union cartel that also collapsed before it got to a jury. And we should also put um, the shipping cartel was a criminal cartel, though no individuals were charged. So yes, yes, that's I right. think from the ACCC perspective, there would be five criminal cartel cases that have been brought so far, yes. um, but all to varying uh, degrees of progress before a jury in terms of how they've played out. Yes, that's right. And uh, this one was significant, this uh, foreign exchange 
uh, cartel was significant, or alleged cartel in the case of the person still facing charges, was significant for uh, several reasons that we mentioned in our recent analysis of the case, including the fact that the ACCC and the Australian Federal Police were alerted to this alleged price-fixing arrangement by investigators who happened to be tapping the phones of the business as part of a, of a totally unrelated uh, investigation. So that was a facet to, to get to get in behind the scenes and to understand how that panned out was was a fascinating process for us as journalists. And though the lawyer of the only charged man uh, pleading not guilty in this case, whose name is Jamie Lee, his lawyers have said that this matter is very much on track for trial. Um, at the end of August, I believe a trial is meant to, meant to begin. Gary Livermore, who is appearing on behalf of Jamie Lee at the moment, has also said we're sensible people and will continue discussions with the federal prosecutor ahead of the trial. So a pre-trial deal isn't inconceivable, but as far as we know, his case will go to trial before a jury. If it does, it will be the second time in Australian history that a trial by jury on criminal cartel matters will be held in Australia, and that will once again prompt speculation about the degree to which a jury can digest such complex matters of competition law. I, I should point out that I start every sentence as, look, I'm a sensible person, but... <laughs> That is such a that is such a winner of approach, isn't it? I'm a, look, I'm a sensible person, Laurel, um, and uh, look, I mean, we've long reported that the ACCC seems to have a preference for tackling digital platforms through consumer law enforcement. Now, if there's a big theme of our work in Australia, it is this, isn't it? It is the use of consumer law to tackle. Uh, digital platforms, often on privacy grounds. So they're not using privacy legislation, which Australia has in place, but that's mm -hmm. a, a discussion uh, that we'll get into in just a moment. But um, they, they're using consumer law for this. And Meta is now facing more legal action from the ACCC, this time over scam cryptocurrency ads. What's the latest of, on, on this case and what do we need to know? So this latest lawsuit was announced um, in March by the ACCC against Meta over these fake celebrity crypto ads appearing on uh, Meta's Facebook platform. In June, we reported on the first hearing in the lawsuit in which Meta sought a non-publication non order to be applied to these Australian court documents, um, arguing that they would prejudice a parallel criminal lawsuit in another Australian state. So again, we've got this jurisdictional element coming into play in these lawsuits because, but it, but in this instance, this is between, um, in, in between national jurisdictions, in between Australian states. And it also brings us to the case of mining billionaire Andrew uh, Forrest, who launched criminal proceedings against Meta in a court in the state of Western Australia, claiming that Facebook had been criminally reckless in allowing uh, the fake ads to suggest that he endorsed cryptocurrencies. Now, we all know what we're talking about when we're talking about these ads, you know, celebrities endorsing questionable uh, crypto uh, products or other products uh, without obviously the celebrity having any knowledge that their image and name has been used in this context. It's Forrest's criminal proceedings that prompted Meta's application for a non-publication order, is that right? That is correct, and there hasn't been a decision on that yet. So uh, the Federal Court of Australia Judge David Yates, who's presiding over the the um, consumer lawsuit, has, has reserved judgment on the publication issue, but a further case management hearing is scheduled for the matter anyway uh, in September. Now, Laurel, I'm a reasonable man. So let's talk about <laughs> privacy now, which is a central part of our coverage. The backdrop to all of this in Australia, of course, is that our privacy legislation dates back to 1988, when uh, Simply Resistible by Robert Palmer was <laughs> top of the charts. You probably even weren't even alive in 19... How old were you in 1988? I'm trying to find a cultural point of reference here. 
I wasn't alive. No, you weren't alive, so you, this means nothing to you. Are you familiar with Robert Palmer's Simply Irresistible? No, you're not. Oh, my goodness. That, that is a, a video that uh, made history in its own right. Now, in, in Australia, we're playing catch-up with the European uh, Union, obviously the GDPR, which is a significant piece of legislation which is reverberating and resonating around the world. New Zealand updated its legislation a few years ago. We covered that in, in some uh, detail. But that means that there is plenty of scope for us to look at areas in Australia in which the absence of a modern privacy law may leave room for a lack of clarity in industry practices. Now, you recently wrote um, uh, about health insurance and the use of the industry of health data generated by smartwatches. Really, really interesting uh, take on that. Why did you decide to look at that issue? I've been reading about and hearing about the benefits of the amount of data that smartwatches produce in particular and how that data could transform the insurance industry if not for the potential uh, for the industry to be held back by any regulation because that could slow technological development and it could slow uh, how they use data as, as, as a result of developing technology. But... What I hadn't heard much about, if anything, were the protections in place for consumers, other than in that sort of vein of it could slow development and progress. The tone of the discussion was more, this is amazing technology, the only thing slowing development is pesky regulatory burden. Mm. And it seemed to me that there were bigger privacy and consumer law risks at play here. Well, what were the, the main things uh, that you discovered while doing the research for that, uh, for that piece that you wrote? Sure, so I'd spoken to a few privacy lawyers and insurance lawyers and I felt like I was getting somewhere. And then this new paper was published by academics, including Zafia Bednards, in June, which really pushed me over the finish line. Uh, Bednards had found that insurance companies were sort of skimming, or are skimming, have skimmed a lot of our online data. And this is a global issue. She was looking at, at this as, from an international perspective. And this went way beyond what I was looking at with just wearable technology. That said, when I spoke with her, she highlighted to me the fact that there's the potential that insurers will attempt to move away with the use of data from wearable technology from a traditional risk pooling model in which the overall risks are considered against the prospects of the average consumer towards this potential future of cherry picking the healthiest individuals. It's not something that's happening, but it's the fact that the way the data is collected it leaves room for it to happen in the future. I mean, that's an interesting conversation in Australia. In a way, it, it tells us that the conversation here is, in a way, immature when compared to the conversation about privacy that's underway in other countries. Because, uh, you know, the health insurance industry will just say, look, there are plenty of regulatory protections in place. But that raises the question, well, sure, that may be the case, but how are you using this data? Why do you need the data um, and for what purpose and what level of consent? So all of those kind of questions that would be part and parcel of the conversation in other jurisdictions around the world, be it uh, Europe or even New Zealand, as we've been uh, covering, but also other jurisdictions where they're talking about privacy at the moment, that is sort of not discussed in Australia. And we're sort of confronted by this reality when you start to ask questions about privacy. People say, oh, well, what's the problem? What's what's the issue? What's What are you writing about? And I think you came across that, didn't you? Exactly. I think if from the insurance perspective, if you look at life insurance or car insurance or home insurance, that potential for data aggregation to pick people 
in the future is definitely more obvious. In the health industry, it's different because Australia has a very specific health insurance model and industry and controls around the fact that um, everyone should have access to to insurance and within a state, everyone faces the same pricing for um, specific treatments. Mm. Obviously not Australian, but I think (laughs) I'm explaining that in roughly the right way. Correct me if I'm wrong, James. But that said, the fact that the data is available, it's too attractive a resource that even if you are a good practitioner, Mm. it just leaves room for abuse. And until we see stronger enforcement of existing laws on consumer consent, and until we see better protections over the use of information, this is an area where consumers could continue to hand over much more information than they might intend to, even if they think they're giving informed consent. Yeah. And again, it just reinforces that the issue of the the urgent need for Australia to update its uh, 1988 um, uh, legislation. Yes, indeed. Finally, James, a story we've been working on in recent days involves class action lawsuits against Google and Apple. In just a few words, what do our colleagues need to know about our coverage there? Yeah, well, class action is a bit of an unusual thing for us here in Australia, given that we don't have the same legal traditions as the uh, as, as other jurisdictions where class actions tend to happen often and run relatively smoothly. We know that because we've seen the film Erin Brockovich, right? <laughs> See, finally, I found a cultural point of <laughs> reference with you. But we're, we're interested in stories affecting big tech uh, at MLEX, particularly when it's based in uh, competition law. A lot of big tech companies are subscribers uh, of ours, so they're very interested and very hungry for this kind of information, although, of course, we deal with them uh, without fear or favour. But uh, these uh, class action lawsuits deal with essentially the same issue as the Epic Games lawsuits, right? So it's about market the, the market power of Apple and Google, Google through the Android operating system for mobile devices. And that is, if you own an Apple phone, the only place where you can get apps is the Apple App Store. And if you're an app developer, the only place where you can sell your wares to users of Apple phones is the Apple App Store. So the argument is that Apple can take an unfair chunk out of your profits uh, for both the sale of the app and also the in-app purchases because there's essentially no competition in that market if you consider the market to be the the Apple iPhone, right? Um, The same obviously can be said for Android. Now, the platforms object to this interpretation. They say that there isn't a monopoly. There's a very competitive environment. People can get their apps elsewhere. But these issues have yet to be tested in Australia. And this is something that the ACCC, although not involved directly in any of these uh, cases, will continue to watch them. I'd be surprised if the ACCC wasn't reading every word that we write on this, which is in a way a bit daunting and a bit concerning, but there you go, that's what we do. Yeah, and just to rewind a moment, so yes, from Apple's perspective, their defence is usually it's a privacy reason, it's a security reason to not allow um, or relax the restrictions that they have on their app store and their operating systems. And from Google's perspective, they will say that Android devices aren't pre-installed or there, there definitely is the possibility to have more than one app store on an Android device, which is not the situation with an Apple, with a piece of Apple hardware. So Google and Apple will come at this from different angles, but the argument that's being put by the law firm is exactly the same in terms of both of these companies have significant market power and both of these companies have imposed restrictive terms of use that have substantially lessened competition in these markets or had the effect or purpose likely effect of doing so. 
Laurel, I think that's where we have to leave things for today. You're a reasonable person, so am I. So we've had a wonderfully reasonable conversation Us for and once. Gary Livermore. That's right. Um, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it should be go that next time you're in front of a judge. Look, I'm a reasonable person. Uh, don't forget that you can find out more about MLEX by going to our website, which is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. MLEX, by the way, is spelled M-L-E-X for those unfamiliar with the service, there's lots of editorial comment there as well as an archive of our weekly podcast featuring MLEX journalists from around the world. For Laurel Henning and me, James Paniki, thank you so much for listening to this special edition podcast from MLEX and LexisNexis. We'll speak to you hopefully in six months' time. Thank you, Laurel. Thanks, James.